The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is the London Visited Podcast on your favourite podcast provider, bringing to you the facts, history and information about different parts of this great capital. If you have been to London, are planning on visiting, live here or just love London from afar, then this is the podcast for you. Hi, I'm Steve and welcome to our podcast. We're here for all things London and to tell you more behind some of the iconic places and people in London's history. In this episode, we go to Hyde Park Corner. Don't forget to visit and subscribe to our YouTube channel, London Visited, to see videos covering this place and so many others across London. And now to this week's podcast. Hyde Park Corner is between Knightsbridge, Belgravia and Mayfair, in the centre of London. It primarily refers to its major road junction at the southeastern corner of Hyde Park that was designed by Decimus Burton. Six streets converge at the junction, Park Lane from the north, Piccadilly northeast, Constitution Hill southeast, Grosvenor Place south, Grosvenor Crescent southwest, and Knightsbridge to the west. Hyde Park Corner tube station, served by the Piccadilly line, has many access ways around the junction, as do its notable monuments. Immediately to the north of the junction is Apsley House, the home of the first Duke of Wellington. Several monuments to the Duke stand in the vicinity, both in his lifetime and subsequently. During the second half of the 1820s, the commissioners of woods and forests and the king resolved that Hyde Park and the area around it must be renovated to the extent of the splendour of rival European capital cities and that the essence of the new arrangement would be a triumphal approach to Buckingham Palace, which had been recently completed. The committee of the project, led by the Prime Minister, Lord Liverpool, and advised by Charles Uthnott, President of the Board of Commissioners of Woods and Forests, selected Decimus Burton as the project's architect in 1828 when giving evidence to a parliamentary select committee on the government's spending on public works. Arbuthnot explained that he nominated Burton, having seen the Regent's Park and elsewhere, works which please my eye from their architectural beauty and correctness. Burton intended to create an urban space dedicated to the celebration of the House of Hanover, national pride and the nation's heroes. The renovation of Hyde Park Green Park and St James's Park began in 1825 with a demarcation of new drives and pathways, subsequent to which Burton designed new lodges and gates, viz. Cumberland Gate, Stanhope Gate, Grosvenor Gate, the Hyde Park Gate, Screen at Hyde Park Corner, and later the Prince of Wales Gate, Knightsbridge, in the classical style. There were no authoritative precedents for such buildings, which required windows and chimney stacks in the classical style. And, in the words of Guy Williams, Burton's reticent treatment of the supernumerary features and of cast iron gates and railings was greatly admired. At Hyde Park Corner, the King required that some great ceremonial outwork would be worthy of the new palace that lay to its rear, and accepted Burton's consequent proposal for a sequence comprising a gateway and a classical screen and a triumphal arch, which would enable those approaching Buckingham Palace from the north to ride or drive first through the screen and then through the arch, before turning left and descend Constitution Hill, 
and enter the forecourt of Buckingham Palace through Nash's Marble Arch. The screen became the Roman Revival Hyde Park Gate screen at Hyde Park Corner, which delighted the King and his committee, and which architectural historian Guy Williams describes as one of the most pleasing architectural works that has survived from the neoclassical age. The Triumphal Arch became the Wellington Arch, here to Constitution Hill facing Green Park, which has been described as one of London's best-loved landmarks. Burton's original design for the Triumphal Arch, which was modelled on the Arch of Taos at Rome, on which the central and side blocks of the screen had been modelled, was more technically perfect and coherent with the screen than that of the arch that was built. This original design, however, was rejected by the committee, who had envisaged a design based on the Arch of Constantine, on which Nash's marble arch had been modelled, because it was not sufficiently ostentatious. Burton created a new design to pander to the majestic ego, which was much larger and modelled on a fragment found in the ancient Roman Forum, which was accepted on the 14th of January 1826, and subsequently built as the present Wellington Arch. The arch at Constitution Hill was left devoid of decorative sculpture as a result of the moratorium in 1828 on public building work, and instead, despite the absolute objection of Burton, was mounted with an ungainly equestrian statue of the Duke of Wellington by Matthew Coates Wyatt, the son of the then recently deceased James Wyatt, who had been selected by the statue's commissioner and one of its few subsequent advocates, Sir Frederick Trench. Matthew Coates Wyatt was not competent. Guy Williams contends that he was not noticeably talented and the Dictionary of National Biography that, thanks to royal and other influential patronage, Wyatt enjoyed a reputation and practice to which his mediocre abilities hardly entitled him. Trench and his patrons, the Duke and Duchess of Rutland, had told the public subscribers to the statue that the statue would be placed on top of Burton's triumphal arch at Hyde Park Corner. Burton expressed his opposition to this proposal as plainly and vehemently as his nature allowed, consistently over successive years, because the ungainly statue would disfigure his arch, for which it was too large, and the surrounding neighbourhood, because it would have to be placed contrary to all classical precedent, across instead of parallel with the roadway under the arch. Burton had envisaged his arch would be topped with only a small quadrangular whose horses would have been parallel with the road under the arch. Burton's objections were extensively endorsed by most of the aristocratic residents of London. A writer in The Builder asked Lord Canning, the first commissioner for woods and forests, to ban the project. We have learnt, and can state positively, that Mr Burton has the strongest objection possible against placing the group in question on the archway, and that he is taking no part whatever in the alteration proposed to be made in the upper part of the structure. To prepare it to receive the pedestal. Mr Burton, through the mildness which characterises him, has not expressed this opinion so loudly and so publicly as he ought to have done. An opinion prevails very generally that he is partly to the proceedings and that has induced many to be silent who would otherwise have spoken. The Prime Minister, Sir Robert Peel, contended that another site would be preferable and proposed, on behalf of the Crown, to offer any other site but the statue's subscribers rejected all alternative proposals. Every single MP, except Sir Frederick Trench, wanted the statue to be placed elsewhere. Canning wrote that the remonstrances which reach Her Majesty's government against the proposed appropriation of the arch are so many and so strong that representations of his architect, Mr Burton, in the same sense, are so earnest 
and the opinion of every other eminent architect, artist, or other competent authority who has been consulted on the subject is so decided against the placing of the Wellington statue on the arch. Decimus Burton himself wrote, The arch would, I consider, suffer greatly in importance if the colossal statue in question be placed here, because it would become a mere pedestal. The want of proportion in the proposed surmount, compared with the columns and other details of the architecture, will show that they have been designed by different hands and without reference for each other. I have desired to witness the completion of this building, as originally designed by me and as approved by the Lords of the Treasury. Yet I would prefer that the building should remain for its present on its forlorn and bare state, rather than a colossal equestrian statue should be placed upon it. I fear that if this appropriation of the building should be decided upon, a proposition would soon be made for removing altogether the facades of the columns, the slender proportions of which would appear so incongruous and out of proportion compared with the prestigious dimensions of the statue. Burton had realised that the disciples of Pugin and the advocates of Pugin's anti-classicism would remove all classical elements from his arch if permitted the opportunity to do so. The government placed the Wellington statue on the arch in autumn 1846. William contends that the product was ridiculous. The builder contended, down unquestionably, it must come. As the network of timber is removed, spar by spar, from before it, so do the folly of the experiment, the absurdity of the conjunction, and the greatness of the sacrifice become apparent. Its effect is even worse than we anticipated, the destruction of the arch by the statue, and of the statue, by its elevation on the arch, more complete. Every post brings us letters urging renewed efforts to remove the figure to another site. The contestation about the prospective removal of the statue became national. However, the government failed to remove the statue, despite that they had professed, when it had been placed, that they would do so if provoked in the aversion which had been provoked. Foreign intellectuals who visited London identified the incongruous fusion of the statue and the arch as spectacular confirmation of the artistic ignorance of the English. Architectural historian Guy Williams writes that the arch at Hyde Park Corner is a visible reminder of one of the fiercest attacks I have ever seen launched in the worlds of the art and architecture. The face of London might have been very different now, freer, perhaps, of the monstrous carbuncles so disliked by the present Prince of Wales, if the attacked party, Decimus Burton, had been a little more pugnacious and better equipped to stand his ground. During 1882, traffic congestion at Hyde Park Corner motivated advocacy for Burton's triumphal arch to be moved to the top of Constitution Hill to create space for traffic. In response to this advocacy, Burton's great-nephew, Francis Fearon, compiled and published a pamphlet that advocated the removal of the Wellington statue from the arch in the event of the removal of the arch to another location. Fearon contended that the arch should be relieved once and for all of this unsightly load. The campaign led by Fearon was successful. Wyatt's incongruous statue was removed to Aldershot and its place on Burton's Arch, which was moved to Constitution Hill in 1883, was occupied by the Quadranga by Captain Adrian Jones. Jones's statue is not nearly as elegant as Burton's design statue intended for the arch, but it is more coherent with the arch than Wyatt's statue and its figures, unlike those of Wyatt's statue, are aligned with the roadway under the arch. The boundary of Buckingham Palace's garden was moved south, and the new road named Duke of Wellington Place was created. This separated the space containing the arch from the rest of Green Park. Following the passage of Park Lane Improvement Act, 
1958, Park Lane was widened in the early 1960s. For most of its length, this was achieved by converting the former East Carriage Drive of Hyde Park into the northbound lanes of a dual carriageway. But at Hyde Park Corner, all lanes of traffic come together on a line immediately to the east of Apsley House that required demolition of houses on Piccadilly. This left Apsley House on the island site. The Intercontinental London Hotel was subsequently built on the cleared site between the new route of Park Lane and Hamilton Place. At a part of the same scheme, a tunnel was constructed beneath the junction to allow traffic to flow freely between Knightsbridge and Piccadilly. As a result, the area around the arch became a large traffic island, mostly laid to grass and accessible by pedestrian underpasses, and formerly ceased to be part of the Green Park. Subsequent changes to the road layout in the 1990s reinstated the route between Hyde Park and Green Park for pedestrians, cyclists and horse riders using surface-level crossings. The traffic island includes a smaller equestrian statue of Wellington by Edgar Boehm, unveiled in 1888, the Machine Gun Corps Memorial and the Royal Artillery Memorial, the Australian War Memorial and the New Zealand War Memorial. Other monuments in the vicinity of Hyde Park Corner include Adrian Jones's Monument to the Cavalry of the Empire, off the west side of Park Lane, Alexander Monroe's Boy and Dolphin statue in a rose garden parallel to Rotten Row, going west from Hyde Park Corner, the Queen Elizabeth Gate behind Apsley House, the Wellington Monument off the west side of Park Lane, and a statue of Lord Byron on the traffic island opposite the Wellington Monument. The term is often erroneously used for Speaker's Corner at the northeastern corner of Hyde Park. So, I hope you've enjoyed our look at Hyde Park Corner, and who would have known way back then that such a statue would create such a public outcry? If you would like to make contact with us or suggest any other places that you'd like us to feature in future podcasts, you can let me know through our website, www.londonvisited.co.uk, or via our social media. It's that easy. Thanks for listening. Really hope you enjoyed our podcast, and we'll see you soon. Bye. Thanks for listening and please don't forget to subscribe to get more shows direct to your device. Also, why not visit our London Visited YouTube channel to get even more of London. Catch you soon on the next one. Have you heard about the 2018 study that showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? No? Well, now you have. I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual the company making traceability the new standard in the supplement industry. I remember staring at my prenatal vitamins and finding all these things I was trying to avoid. High amounts of heavy metals, synthetic colorants, and unnecessary ingredients. So, at four months pregnant, I quit my job and started Ritual, because I believe that all women deserve to know what they're putting in their bodies and why. I'm so proud of our prenatal vitamin. The ingredients are 100% traceable, it's third-party tested for microbes and heavy metals, and recently received the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. You see, we trace like a mother because, let's be honest, no one cares quite like a mother. But don't just take my word for it. Trace for yourself with 25% off at ritual.com prenatal. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.